thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. What's your sole purpose in this army? To do whatever you tell me, drill sergeant. Lieutenant, tell your men to get down. We're going to light up the sky. We got a black hawk down. We got a black hawk down. Broken arrow! You've heard Bomber Month. I'm We've had F-15 Month. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Okay! Move out. Well, hold on to your berets because now it's Army Aviation Month. We have What kind of training, son? The first four Mondays in August will feature topics on fixed wing Army aircraft, Army flight school, various rotary wing aircraft, and the lethal AH 64 Apache gunship. Never mind the fluff. Let's get straight to it with your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot Vincent Aiello. Welcome to our final installment of Army Aviation Month 2020 here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your host, Jello, and this final week, we have Chief Warrant Officer 4, Tim Settle, with us to discuss the AH-64 Apache. How's it going, Tim? Uh, So far, so good, buddy. How you doing? (laughs) I'm doing well, thanks. You are the uh, cleanup batter here for Army Aviation Month. It's been a good run so far, but uh, I'm really looking forward to learning about the AH-64. Yeah, let's do it. Cool. All right. Well, first, let's start with you. Where are you from? What did you do in the military so far, and what are you doing now? Uh, so I kind of grew up as a military brat. My family's primarily from southern West Virginia, and uh, because of that, my dad and myself both, we uh, got out of there as fast as we could. I joined the <laughs> Army at 18 and uh, as a helicopter mechanic, as an Apache mechanic, and I did that for a few years before I transitioned into uh, becoming a warrant officer. And then, obviously, I've flown for the last probably 14 years now, flying Apaches, uh, multiple combat tours, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, currently stationed at Fort Rucker, Alabama. Taught flight school for a little bit. Now, I'm I'm working for the Directorate of Evaluations and Standards. All right. What kinds of things do they do? Just like it sounds, uh, making sure the fleet, as we would call it in the Navy, is all operating the same way or? Yeah, basically, uh, prior to the COVID, uh, we would go on assessments and basically look at units, training programs. The Army has a a bunch of different tests that we do every couple of years or Mm -hmm. uh, evaluations that we do every couple of years where we'll look. The force comm side is basically looking at, do they have a program to train flight or things like that? Whereas the DES side, what we do is go in and make sure that it's actually a quality program. Okay. So now you guys are doing some of that remotely, I guess, in this crazy new world we're in? Yeah, uh, that's really the big thing is we've transitioned to that remotely, uh, looking at records keeping and teaching some academics. The big thing is now we've transitioned from a evaluations directorate. We still do some of that, but what we try to focus on now is the teaching and the mentoring. As the Army changes its focus on what we're kind of doing War-wise, we found that there's some shortcomings in the force, and we spent a lot of time just trying to to mentor and teach. That sounds cool. Now, do you get a chance to fly on the side right now, or is this purely desk duty? No, I fly as a warrant officer. It's pretty much my job to fly until the day I get out of the Army. Uh, So... (laughs) 
it's beginning to become more of an extra duty to go fly where I'm, I'm in meetings and things all day, but the high point by, you know, of my week is to go fly. So, well, that's good. I mean, that's why you do the warrant officer flying program. As I've learned this month is if you go the other route for the commissioned officer guys, then a lot of times they get pulled into all these other collateral style duties, generals, aides and things. So yeah, absolutely. Pretty good racket. Okay. Cool, man. Well, let's talk about the AH-64 Apache. And as with most of our discussions here in Army Aviation Month on the show, I really don't know that much about it. I know that it's pretty cool. It looks to me like a a fighter jet for helicopters. And I know it does a lot of things. Like I believe it kicked in the door the very first night of Desert Storm. So I guess let's just start at the beginning. But first off, actually, how many hours do you have in it? I've currently got right around 3,500 hours total flying the Apache. Wow. A little over 2,100 hours of that is a uh, flying night system, you know, at night flying FLIR and, and doing that sort of thing. Crazy. Okay. Well, let's start back at the beginning. This thing was designed out of a um, requirement that I think started in the 70s and it made its way into Army use. But tell us, if you can, how this thing came to be. You know, all the way up to Vietnam, Army helicopters were primarily meant for transportation and and getting people in and out of places uh, more so than anything else. And then in Vietnam, we started seeing a need for not necessarily close air support, but some sort of gun asset that could go along with ground forces as a maneuver type element and protect both air assault infills and, and that sort of thing. And so you started seeing the production of the Huey gunships where they would mount rockets and uh, chain guns onto the sides of those, mm-hmm. which eventually transitioned into the Cobra, which was essentially a Huey gunship, only really, really thin because it'd make it much more difficult to shoot with uh, small arms. As we began to transition out of the Vietnam era and we started looking at you know, the deep strike capabilities, fold the gap is one that always comes up as we talk in Germany, you know, the potentials of the Red Horde coming, we realized that we needed a, a tank killer. Yeah. And so it began to be designed at that point as a, basically an anti-tank armored, you know, helicopter. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times you'll hear guys that have been doing this a while refer to, you know, the tank of the sky. And that's really kind of the way it was designed and the way that we kind of used it for a long time. And so as a result of that, I'm guessing it had to have certain design features like the ability to carry certain weapons and to be protected from battle damage because you're going to get down in the dirt with uh, everyone that's slugging it out, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The seats that we sit on now are the same seats that were designed in the original aircraft, and it's essentially 300 pounds of Kevlar just meant to not get shot from underneath. Hmm. So it was designed to be able to carry at the time eight uh, or up to 16 tow missiles. We eventually designed the Hellfire missile set to go on top of it and also be able to shoot rockets. You know, there were a lot of things that they wanted to be able to do to cover the fight. The aircraft is fairly armored, more so than a lot of other aircraft, not nearly as well as, say, Russian aircraft, but we're more agile than those guys. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing is redundancy. There's a lot of redundancies in our system. So as, as one system gets shot out, another system is able to take over and that sort of thing, because it's fully expected for us to be in firefights and take bullets. Yeah. Is that fairly common as well with your experiences? I mean, we could talk about deployments and sea stories later, but what anecdotally uh, of your own experience, what have you seen? So early in the war, Iraq and Afghanistan, it was fairly common. We would fly very low, uh, you know, 25, 50 feet, things like that, get down in the dirt with guys. And small arms were really our biggest issue. And the aircraft handled exceptionally well. And then as the wars went on and we started designing other systems to go on the aircraft, uh, we realized that small arms, you know, bang for the buck, it wasn't worth being those low. And so we started climbing up higher in altitudes, at which point we stopped taking small arms fire as much. Mm. There's actually a couple good 
documentaries if you want, uh, or a couple of good stories. You can kind of search around about the invasion of Iraq and 11th Regiment and kind of how some of the things that this go around of Iraq, some of those aircraft were shot up exceptionally bad, but with the exception of one, they all made it home to be repaired and put back in the fight within a few weeks. Uh, that's crazy. Okay, so with the fall of the Soviet Union and the Iron Curtain and that whole role, I'm guessing the Apache has had to adapt to this newer war on terror, if you will, and modern operations. Is there anything different about what it does now? And what would you say is kind of a bread and butter role or what does it really excel at? So now it, it really excels at close air support. We don't call it that in the Army, but that's really what it is. Okay. We've gotten used to, in both Iraq and Afghanistan, flying straight over the shoulder of the ground forces, helping the ground force commanders make decisions, feeding them information that we see and also receiving information from them. And because of the way that we train and the way that we are designed, sometimes the other forces assets become kind of stringent in the way that they can be employed. And we don't really have those issues. As far as most gun pilots are concerned for the army, if you give me a a frequency and a call sign, that's all I need and I'll go handle business. So we've really adapted to minimal information, being able to support ground force commanders, understanding ground force scheme of maneuver, because Mm -hmm. with the warrant officer corps, we bring everybody over. That's one of the things that gives us the strength that we have is because in a attack company, you could have a guy who was a ranger battalion guy. You could have a guy who was a field artillery guy. You could have a guy who was a helicopter mechanic. We use all of our back experiences to be better. Well, and that's what it's all about. As we talked last week on the OH-58 Kiowa, is your role is not for you to be out there and taking all the attention and getting it done as you're really an extension of the folks on the ground and another weapon system for them, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. You know, The Army aviation motto is above the best, and that's because we're not the best the guys on the ground are. Uh, that's pretty cool. All right. Well, let's talk through the variants. And I mean, we don't have to go through no details on each one, but just give us an overview of them. And then which ones did you fly the most? There's really only been three variants since the introduction. The original was the Alpha model. Um, I did not have the chance to fly the Alpha okay. model, but I was a crew chief on Alpha models. And that was steam gauges and the cockpits were very different. They were set up very specifically for front seat being specific gunner roles and tasks while the back seat flew. That lasted all the way up to the late 90s. And then we started putting out the Delta model Apache, which is probably the one majority of people are familiar with. That's a full glass cockpit with multifunction displays that I can put all sorts of information up. And it also sort of streamlined both jobs. So the front seater and the back seater can do about 90% of the same things. There's still a handful of tasks that are really you know seat independent, but that allowed us to train guys in both seats and fly them better. Yeah. And then really the downside to it. So it kind of became the alpha model was really, really light, really, really powerful, really, really fast. We used to call it the sports car, the convertible. Mm -hmm. And then when we became the Delta model, you know, all those electronics weigh. So it kind of slowed us down a little bit. We were still able to do more than most, but uh, we weren't comfortable with the way that the aircraft was flying. I mean, it's got a lot of hours and it fights really, really well, but we wanted our power margin back. We developed mm-hmm. the Echo model Apache, you know, better engines, better rotor system, and it's really back to being the sports car that it used to be. And it also brings in a lot of the new technologies, uh, integrations with UAVs and things like that to be able to get the job done. 
Yeah. No, I'm just chuckling because our guest on the F-16 episode, T-Day, who had over 4,000 hours flying F-16s, said something similar. You know, I guess it's just human nature that as aircraft mature, more and more things find their way onto them. So they just get heavier and heavier and the performance suffers. But, you know, it's a trade-off as are so many things. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and it, it is what it is. And one of the things that we kind of discovered was as we transitioned from a single-use platform to a multi-role platform, we needed more systems, and those systems come at the cost of weight. So the Delta model is still being flown, and it is still a phenomenal aircraft. But once you get into an Echo model, you go, okay, there it is. I get it now. <laughs> what did you spend most of your time in? The vast majority of my time has been in Delta models. Okay, That's what I grew up in. Because of that, I have flying habits that I probably won't ever break. I was so used to always being power limited and having to be smart with the power that I use for takeoffs and things like that. And then I get into an echo and people sometimes laugh at me like, hey man, you got some more, you can pull some more. And like, yeah, but <laughs> I'm not used to that. Yeah. Muscle memory. That's right. That's right. Okay. Is there a variant with the either mast or I don't know what else to call it up on top, kind of like an OH-58's sensor up there? Do you guys do a little bit of that as well? So that was one of the big things that came with Delta model was the uh, fire control radar. We call it the cheese wheel or the donut sometimes. It's basically that giant radar that's on top. And what that allows us to do is it works the same as any radar with the exception of we can pick up stationary targets. It allows us to pick up, unmask, scan a battlefield using radar. It can process the returns that it gets and, and give us the ability to say, hey, these are bad guys and shoot at whatever we see or whatever we find without necessarily having to stare at it. Mm -hmm. It links up with the Lima model missiles, which are radar guided fire and forget missiles. Mm -hmm. That gives us another capability versus the SAL missiles, which we still employ, but those are laser guided, which means we have to be eyes on the target the entire time. Yep. Not unlike our laser guided Maverick. Okay. And then just talking about the crew in there real quick. Like in an F-14, we might have a pilot. Well, you definitely have a pilot in the front and a Rio in the back. And a Rio is trained differently. What's in an Apache? Is it two pilots? And does a junior one start in one position? Or do you just mix it up as you go? How does that work? Yep. Just two regular pilots. They both graduate the flight, same flight school. What generally happens in the American military is the senior pilot is normally the backseater, which is primarily responsible for flying and maneuvering the aircraft. Okay. And the front seater is primarily responsible for weapons employment, talking to the ground force and things like that. But it's the same amount of training. It's normally time, right? Time is normally what, uh, what sure. moves a person to the other seat. We are different in that case. A lot of the foreign militaries that have bought Apaches kind of do it the opposite way where their senior guy is the guy talking to the ground force and fighting and their junior guy is the guy flying. I don't know why we do it that way, but we do. So I guess it depends on what you put a premium on. So for example, in my current airline capacity, whenever I'm flying with a captain and he talks at the beginning of a rotation about how we'll handle emergencies, he usually says, I'll let you fly. You know, you set us up for landing and I'll take care of the emergency and talking to the people and the flight attendants and all that. And I guess maybe the motto is that's a more strategic thing to do. Whereas just the monkey skills are, uh, you know, just give it to the first officer. I can handle it kind of thing. <laughs> so yeah, maybe, maybe something like that. Maybe. And that's, uh, you know, in some instances, we preach it a lot of the time. We're in most situations, the ground is going to kill you way before the bad guy does. And so mm. being the pilot is probably the bigger deal. But what we found through years and years of doing this is 
as crews get senior and senior, if especially with me as an, as an instructor, if I'm flying on a mission and my front seater is just not keeping up with everything that's going on, I have the ability to start taking over some of those roles, but that's obviously okay. a last resort kind of situation. Sure. And then vice versa, if you take an unlucky round in the back seat, can the front seater fly the aircraft? Absolutely. And that's the thing. If something happens to either one of us, the aircraft is still 100% effective. We'd lose some of the things that we would be able to bring to a fight. But uh, if we needed to, we could stay on station and continue to fight or the opposite crew member could fly it home from either station. So. Yeah, at the very least, go recover safely. That's right. Okay. Now, you talked about some of the other countries. This thing isn't just a U.S. weapon system like the F-22, let's say. this It's been uh, proliferated around a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the probably most known is the U.K. The Brits have been flying Apaches for almost as long as we have. Okay. Then behind that is probably the Dutch. You see the Dutch uh, or Netherlands flying Apaches. And then Mm -hmm. over the last few years, probably 10 years or so, we started seeing more and more Morocco, Qatar, the UAE, Japan, Taiwan, some of those countries picking up on them. Interesting. Uh, According to my folks who helped me prepare for these interviews, Egypt, Greece, India, Indonesia, Israel, Kuwait. Uh, Let's see, you listed some of those other ones. And so, yeah, that's uh, pretty wild. And I think, did I read also, do the uh, Brits, do they call it something slightly different? So they do, uh, I think they call it the WAH, um, and it's got to do with the licensing of who actually builds their airframes for them versus Boeing. Theirs also differs in the fact that where we have GE engines, they have Rolls-Royce engines in theirs. Oh, interesting. Does that get them any better performance or maybe not? I don't know. It's different. Technically, they're different in the fact that our power levers inside the cockpit still manage the engines. We have a, a level of manual that we can go to, okay. whereas I'm not so sure that those guys have it. I'm, I'm not a maintenance guy, so I don't really know, but but I've heard pretty good things about them. Apparently, they're fairly reliable. That's cool. Yeah, and I guess they are built by Subaru in Japan as well, so license built uh, according to this. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I don't actually have a lot of experience with the Japanese Apaches and kind of their programs. I've worked in my last couple of years here, you know, running flight school in the instructor pilot course. I've worked with a lot of Kuwaitis, uh, Saudis, Qataris, UAE, Indonesia, but never a Japanese soldier. So Okay. Let's talk weapons. And first off, just to get it out of the way, last week, our OH-58 guest, Ryan, talked about personal weapons like rifles and pistols and things is that but they also talked about flying with their doors off i'm guessing you guys aren't uh, taking your doors off a lot at least i've never seen a picture of one running around without them no no we'd uh we need that thing it keeps the air conditioning running <laughs> okay <laughs> so probably uh, other than a pistol in case you have to force land somewhere everything's external so we do fly uh the pistol and we've started carrying probably the last uh, 15 years or so m4 rifles so that if we do end up having to go down somewhere we do have some way of, of defending ourselves cool. you'll see different guys will weasel you know smoke grenades and things like that but that's normally a in case bad things happen situation yeah but everything else is primarily external to the airframe Okay. And let's talk about those. Let's start with the gun. Yeah. 30 millimeter chain gun, 625 plus or minus 25 rounds a minute. And while that doesn't seem like a lot, each one of those rounds is essentially a hand grenade. And the minimum I can select to shoot is 10 at a time. So it tends to get the job done. Primarily the thing that makes it the most dangerous or probably the most different from what a lot of people are familiar with is the fact that we can mount it to our head. So as I turn my head left and right inside the cockpit, the gun moves left and right as well. So that if I see something and I need to suppress something in order to defend myself, all I've really got to do is look at it and pull the trigger. 
That's pretty cool. So whatever you're looking through a little reticle, I presume, is that like a death dot? If you put the thing on the thing and squeeze the trigger, is that where the bullets go? Yeah, it's fairly accurate. We tell people uh, out to about 4,200 meters, max ballistic solution, but things start getting squirrely out there. But inside of that, it's a bad day for somebody. Yeah. Okay. And my technical jargon there is just an inside joke for my one of the squadrons I was in. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Ryan last week was talking about grease pencils on the windshield or just a bug on the windshield. And like, okay, when I squeeze the trigger, that's where it goes on this aircraft. So uh, that's what you got to do. But sounds like you guys have a slightly better system than that. Yeah, for us, uh, everything's managed through uh, either weapons processors for the Delta models or mission processors for the Echo models. So a lot of the math is taken out. And so all I really tell it is, hey, there's something there that I need handled. Mm -hmm. And it does a lot of the calculations for me. All right, moving aft then, uh, you've got other weapons. What else do we have? Hellfire you talked about? We can carry 16 Hellfire. That's generally not the weapons load that we fly with, at least in that number. Mm Mm-hmm. The wings carry two pylons, one on each wing, and those pylons are built to carry both uh, rocket pods or hellfires. And we can kind of mix and match how we want that based on what the ground force commander wants or what even the uh, what our commanders want. In Iraq and Afghanistan now, you may see aircraft, if you see pictures, you may see them with only one rocket pod on the outside of one wing, one hellfire rack on the outside. <laughs> but if we know that we're going into a decisive action fight, somebody tank battalions, that sort of situation, uh, then we can switch it out and carry 16 Hellfires at once, uh, four on each rack. Yeah, you can essentially respond to the threat and put on what you need. Okay. And so was there ever a capability for five-inch rockets, or does the Army even play that game? No, not at all. Uh, We primarily use the 2.75-inch rockets. There are a boatload of different warheads that we use on those. Oh, yes. Anything from what we'll call 10-pounders, and they're basically just the normal... PD rocket, you know, point it that way and it shoots and blows up. And then, you know, we've got flechette rockets, which are uh, 1179, essentially 16 penny nails in a rocket body that goes off. Uh, that's meant for primarily minimizing damage to houses and things like that. It's, it's good for people, but bad for stuff. Okay. We've got MPSMs, uh, multi-purpose submunitions. So they're basically small bomblets that will come out of the rocket and kind of drip down and, and it's used for kind of putting submunitions over a large area formations of, of tanks or vehicles or things like that. That's crazy. We've also got some that are not as fun. Um, they're so fun to shoot, but like, uh, Illum rockets, we have both a covert and an overt Illum rocket that we can use for uh, helping lift aircraft, get in and out of LZs or things like that, or marking area for ground force. We also have uh, smoke rockets, Willie Pete, White Foss is kind of going out, and we're starting to transition more and more to Red Foss, but those are also available for us. Okay. But don't you have to know in advance what you're going to be doing to load the pod correctly? Because at least in the F-18, when I had a pod out there, I had to pre-flight and set it to a certain thing. And once I got in the jet, every time I pushed a button, I would just get the next rocket. So do you guys have to decide that in advance, or do you have some ability to say, I want this kind of rocket for this shot? We can do it early. There are zones that are kind of set up so we can take a load. So what you're seeing right now with the global war on terrorism is most aircraft are flying with probably 12 PD rockets, three Illum rockets, and four Flechette rockets. And we can kind of cipher between those depending on what we need. If we do know that we're going out against other forces or or things like that and we have prior planning, then we can load up rocket pods for all PDs or all MPSMs or something along those lines. But that comes with a whole different pre-planning, that sort of thing. All right. So mainly Hellfire and rockets. I guess there was never a need to fix any other forward-firing guns because the 30 millimeter is sufficient. 
So no 50 cows or anything like that? No, no 50 cows. You know, for years we've had discussions on how neat it would be to put like a minigun under the wing, but that's never really <laughs> gone anywhere. Okay. 30 handles most of the business that we need. We have started kind of upgrading some of the systems we have with APKWS, Advanced Precision Kill Rockets. So they're basically laser-guided rockets. Yeah. And then there are so many variants of Hellfire at this point with different capabilities and different things that they bring to the fight. And so we try to fly with a mix and match of those, depending on what we're going to do from thermobaric, you know, good for overpressurization caves and that sort of thing to just regular armor penetrating, you know, meant for tanks, but work just as well on Hilux pickup trucks. (laughs) Crazy. All right. I have to ask Sidewinder, anything for air to air? So in uh, a lot of people will probably remember a movie that we will not talk about. (laughs) They do have Sidewinder capabilities. The lugs are actually still on the aircraft, but we've never put them on American Apaches. Okay, Uh, I'm sure at some point if they decide to do it, then we could. But no, we don't really train with that or, or do anything like that. All right, let's talk about flying this thing. I mean, I alluded earlier to the idea that to me, it kind of seems like a fighter jet of helicopters as far as performance goes and maneuverability and flying. First off, what's it like to fly? And and then secondly, give us a couple personal bests, if you will, as far as highest altitude, fastest speed. I mean, what? maybe even Gs. I guess it can pull a few Gs, but what's this thing do? Yeah, it's pretty impressive for a helicopter. For one, you know, a lot of people don't realize it's as big as it is until they actually see it and realize that it's 40 feet long. And sitting on the ramp loaded, that thing gets upwards of 18, 19,000 pounds. So a lot of people are kind of surprised to realize how big the aircraft is. And then once you yeah. realize how big the aircraft is, it becomes really impressive with some of the things that you can do with it. We are the only airframe in the Army that our airworthiness releases allow us to actually roll the aircraft 120 degrees, which in a helicopter, 120 degrees is upside down. But we're able to do it. It's actually something we practice fairly regularly. It's pretty maneuverable. And while with the D-Model Power Limited was an issue, it was never something that would take us out of the fight. I've landed aircraft uh, in Colorado upwards of 12,000, 13,000 feet you know, you've got to be careful with what you're doing, but the aircraft handles it well. And and the biggest thing for us is to take away that, you know, we are kind of the weak link of the system. The aircraft will do what you ask it to do. You just got to be smart with how you ask it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true of modern fighters as well. So, okay. So you've had this thing up pretty high. Do you guys have supplemental oxygen or anything? Uh, we do. We'll fly around if it's something that we know we're going to run into, especially in Afghanistan. Uh, we do have supplemental oxygen bottles that we'll take with us. Okay. But the vast majority of the time, we don't really need to carry it. To, you know, prior to Afghanistan, getting up that high was meant for people who wanted to fly far, and we never wanted to do that sort of thing. So. Yeah, I don't blame you. Okay. And I read about 200 knots. Uh, what have you seen speed-wise in this thing? So speed-wise, you know, we'll cruise around uh, in a fully loaded D model, 120 or so, getting to and from places. We go a little faster if there's somebody in a firefight. Mm-hmm. And then once we get on station, it's all about bang for the buck, right? So right. how long can I fly on the amount of fuel that I have? And so if we fly you know, haul and tail everywhere we go, we're burning way too much gas to be useful when we get there. And once we get on station, we can kind of slow back and save some fuel and and kind of really stretch those legs. But I think I was doing instruments last week and uh, we were doing instruments about a buck 40, probably 140 knots, which for a helicopter is pretty impressive, I guess. Yeah, that's respectable. And then what's a typical flight endurance or length, if you will? So hour, two hours, three hours? Yeah, it depends on... uh, So the same magazine that holds our 30 millimeter rounds, uh, as we realize we need more and more fuel, we would switch those to what we call Robbie's. It's made by Robinson, essentially. And that puts us an extra hundred gallons inside the aircraft. So with a full Robbie, I can 
stretch my fuel somewhere three to three point three hours or so, depending on how I manage my stuff. Uh, without that, Robbie, we're looking more around two to two and a half, depending on what you're doing. Okay, but as I learned last week, if it's an ongoing operation, you might have a FARP somewhere, right? And you can plop down there, get gas, get weapons and get right back out pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's one of the first things that we look at is uh, either building hard FARPs. Uh, If you look at Iraq or Afghanistan through the years, there were a bunch of little bases all over the place. So, and every one of those would generally have a FARP for us to kind of spool in and get gas or get rearmed and that sort of situation. (laughs) Uh, And then we also have the ability, if we're doing further missions or things like that, where we can put Chinooks out there to be farps for us in the middle of the desert. So, you know, Chinook will land, we'll land right behind him, top back off, and then off we go again. <laughs> That's pretty cool. All right. What's it like to fly? I mean, I've never flown a helicopter, but is it easy? Is it a lot of work? I mean, are there systems that help you? How would you describe it? So I tell people, you know, most guys that apply to come to flight school are the type A, I've never been bad at anything. This is just going to be another one of those things. And then day one, you get in the helicopter and you are terrible, just absolutely terrible. (laughs) Nobody, nobody picks this up naturally. So, you know, I remember having the conversations with my wife. I was 25 at the time going through flight school going, Hey babe, I think I made a bad decision, but eventually you figure it out. The crew coordination or the coordination of it comes along and, and you start understanding that your feet and your hands all have to work independently of each other. When you start flying an Apache and and you strap the HDU to your face or the optical to your face, you got to realize that now your head has to disconnect from your arms and that sort of thing. So it's not easy, but it's definitely something that anybody can learn to do if they really put the time and effort into it. I'm actually glad you said that, Tim, because we have a lot of young folks that listen to this show and I get a lot of questions about what happens if I don't get this particular platform or what happens if I'm not good or I get washed out. And I just tell them, I said, well, you know, you just have to commit to doing this and there will be ups and downs. It always seems like the other guy makes it look easy and hopefully to them, you're making it look easy, but it's really a journey, isn't it? I mean, there are definitely times of self-doubt. When you said that, I thought back to my own experiences in flight school. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, this doesn't come naturally yeah. to really anybody. If And if it does, I'm envious of them because it didn't come naturally for me. <laughs> no. But yeah, it's like anything. You kind of tighten down your bootlaces and, and look to left and right and go, what do I need to do to get better? And, and you keep pushing forward. And if you do that, you'll be successful. Amen. All right. So when you think about the Apache, what are maybe one or two of your favorite features about it? So I am a huge proponent of FLIR, primarily that we are the only airframe that I know of that flies primarily based on forward-looking infrared. So the two sensors at the front of the aircraft, those are mounted to our HDU, the helmet display unit. As I turn my head left and right, that sensor moves left and right up and down with me. And so I'm flying based on the FLIR imagery that's receiving from that. Now, some would tell you that that shouldn't work because you lose your depth perception, but we seem to do it pretty good. But one of the things that that allows us to do is a loom is no longer an issue. So, you know, I've been in the mountains of Afghanistan with zero cultural lighting and no loom. The, the moon's not out and you put goggles on NVGs and, and you go, no, nah, this isn't for me. So I, I put my goggles back up and I put my HDU back in my face. And, and I'm, as far as FLIR is concerned, I can see forever. Yeah, that's pretty nice. I'm a big fan of it. And the other thing that that allows us to do is find people that think they can't be found. Yes, uh, that is a good capability in war. That's right. Okay. Just maybe this isn't so easy to answer, but would you say, is there like the F-117 when we had that show? I mean, they do almost exclusively night operations. Are you guys maybe more at night or not necessarily, or does it just depend on the threat? I mean, that's obviously, I think, one of the answers, but do you guys tend towards more day or more night? 
So we'll do whatever the ground force commander asks us to do. Obviously, um, we do prefer night. Uh, night just gives us so many advantages over the daytime. But at the end of the day, if there's a 19 year old kid in the field during the daylight, we're going to be in the field with him. Yeah. So that's kind of the way that we look at it. But the happy balance, I would say, is probably 80 percent night, 20 percent day. Uh, and it just okay. varies with what the ground commander needs. All right. That makes sense. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. All right, so we talked about your favorite feature. Was there ever anything about it that just bugged you? You just wish someone would have spent the money to fix? It's probably the unpopular opinion. As we get more and more advanced with some of the things we're strapping to the aircraft, they're giving us the ability to fly UAVs with it. And I don't want to do that. (laughs) We pay people to do that. Yeah, I don't know too many pilots who do want to do that, but anyway. The aircraft is just, it's getting so technological that it is getting to a point where we almost can't manage it. I say we broadly, but it's not uncommon to have five radios going at one time. Plus we're talking between each other. Plus I'm managing a wingman. And now they want me to also control a UAV. I love the ability to pull UAV video. That's something that the Delta model also has. But as far as actually taking control of the sensor, I, I'm not a big fan of that, but you know, somebody clearly is cause we're paying for it. So well, I think more is better as a common trap that people tend to fall in in a lot of things in life, but especially in military aircraft, it seems like. But I get that. I would say, like I've mentioned on the show a lot, fighter pilots have changed from just the chest-thumping guys that are going out and doing what soldiers do on the ground, but in an airplane, to more tactically thinking about moves, almost like a chess player now instead of a wrestler kind of thing. That's right. So. Sounds like you guys might be going through a little of that as well. Yeah, we're running into the same thing. Uh, We're expecting people to know more and more. Mm -hmm. It's doable, but that comes with the offset, right? It's a cultural shift, and cultural shifts are never easy. So we want people who are thinkers. We are creating a word in the office, diagnosticians, you know, where a guy can work through a problem set on his own without having to to run to somebody else. But that's hard if you don't recruit for that. If you're not specifically looking for that, that's hard to breed into a people. It's doable. It just takes a little time. And, you know, like everything else is if that's what the ground force commander wants, it's what he's going to get. Yeah. And some have that ability and some don't. In the F-18 community, we talk a lot about the ability to do all these different missions, but it's very hard for air crew to stay up on and get good at any one of them, you know, really well. Is that an issue for you guys? Is there a fatigue, if you will, or are you overloaded with missions? Or, I mean, you're talking about the UAV stuff, but otherwise, is it pretty easy to do the things you guys need to do? 
No, we're starting to run into a situation where because of Iraq and Afghanistan and, and what we've deemed the coin fight, we've gotten really used to being able to fly high and that takes us away from, you know, running into things and people shooting at us and stuff like that. And now as we transition into potential near peer or things like that, we need to start flying the aircraft much lower, much slower, things like that. And we're just not good at it. You know, those things have atrophied over the years. And then, like I said, as we, we want people to become smart in the doctrine, understand what the ground force scheme of maneuver is. And it, it really is a lot of information and it's taking us a while. We're finding that we're not as good as we should be. And so it's hard to get units pointed in the right direction. You know, one of the things we always say, or one of the things we hear out in the, the units sometimes and stuff is if everything's a priority, nothing is a priority. It becomes one of those things. Of, okay. <laughs> what, what's important this week, you know? Yeah, no, that does sound about right. Cool. Let's move on to notoriety. I mean, this aircraft to me is fairly well known, I feel like, but is there any one thing that would say is the reason people know about it, whether it's kicking in the door on there's a storm night or uh, maybe a particular movie or how how do people know about this? Uh, Unfortunately, probably the movie Firebirds, which we build (laughs) as the Arby's Top Gun, but it did not pull that off. Okay. Uh, you know, it's actually not a bad movie. It's kind of a joke around the Apache community. Um, there are a lot of unrealistic things, but that's probably where people have seen it in pop culture or, uh, I've seen a handful of movies where they send Apaches up against transformers and stuff and they get knocked out in the sky. Of course. But really if people are kind of not maybe history buffs, but they kind of look back on it. Yeah. We were the first guys to go in and start the ground war for the original Iraq, uh, in the nineties. You've probably seen a ton of footage and things like that through Iraq and Afghanistan, especially as the 58D kind of started transitioning out where uh, that's probably what we've been been known for. YouTube's filled full of videos of ours. Oh, yeah. Was one of them, not to pick at a scab, apologies, but is one of them the fratricide incident? Was that an Apache where an aircraft had drifted off course? You can feel it in the guy's voice. He just says, I was afraid of that. I want to go home. That was Desert Storm, and that was an Alpha Model Apache. So, you know, that aircraft was Doppler-based nav, so it had a tendency to drift. You had to tell it occasionally, hey, this is where I'm at, so it would kind of know where it was at. And, yeah, he ended up drifting out of boundary and Mm -hmm. and shooting some friendlies. A pretty unfortunate event. That's become a training video over the years for the Army, and we show guys. Yes, we've seen it too. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And some of the stuff that's lost sometimes is, you know, he had another three or four hours worth of missions after that. So it wasn't like, Oh my God, this happened, turned around and he was able to kind of gather himself up and continue to fight and things like that. But that's unfortunately something that he'll deal with for a long time. Yeah. I don't envy that, but that may be where some people have seen it. I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah. I always felt for that guy because you just hear his voice, just this sadness. And he asks if he can go home and the person tells him to your point, no, these things are going to happen. This is war and we need you out here and good on him. If he was able to recover from that, because I agree with you, I let's not go too far down there, but as far as what happened after and, and years later and family and all that, that could definitely be destructive. If, if a person allowed it to be. The fog of war is very real. And a lot of people who've never experienced it, I guess, kind of lose sight of it sometimes. It's awesome when we put videos of us being successful on YouTube and everybody goes, yeah, look what we did. Yeah. But we also have our failures. I don't want to say it's a cost of yeah. business because it's kind of a terse way to put it, but sometimes things happen. And, and the only thing that we can do is go, okay, how do we learn from this and make sure that we don't have it happen again? Absolutely. And I think it's easy, of course, for people to get outraged by it uh, who don't really know any better. And not to say it's excusable, like yeah, you absolutely. said, but it is going to happen. 
there's not much more really we can probably say to try to fix it or otherwise. Okay. Well, when you think back at your career and all your many thousands of hours in the Apache, is there one mission or event or something that sticks out that you want to share with us that is characteristic of the aircraft or the mission or anything else? So two, probably, uh, okay. I got attached to a 58 D squadron in Northern Iraq in 2007 during the surge. And during that portion of, of the Iraq war, 58s had been up there for a long time. And those guys are great at flying low, finding things with their eyeball and talking ground forces onto them. And we came up to kind of assist with, you know, the last bastion of AQI at the time, you know, we same people, different names, I guess. And, and so we kind of pushed up there and and it was interesting as we're kind of getting a feel for each other, because now we have a 58 squadron commander who's in control of us. And, you know, everybody's sort of trying to figure out what our role is and what we're supposed to do. And, and we fly out in what we call pink teams, one fifty eight, one Apache. And the whole idea in a pink team, and it was something that was done in Vietnam is, you know, the 58 kind of goes down and picks a fight and then the Apache comes in and cleans up the fight. And so we kind of practiced some of those techniques and there was this little Island in a river that we would practice on. And this particular day we had two 58s. We were trying this thing, heavy pinks. So the first 58 would come in over and he'd drop a smoke grenade. The second 58 would come in and he would put 50 cal on top of the smoke grenade. And then we would drop in from about 2000 feet and we would put 30 millimeter on the smoke grenade. And it was kind of practicing these runs. And I remember the first burst of 30 millimeter hitting that Island, the squadron commander who was in the second aircraft goes, man, those were great rockets. And we're like, sir, those were rockets. That was our 30. You don't want to see rockets. And I remember hearing the (laughs) all (laughs) like the, Oh, (laughs) I was a pretty young Apache pilot back then. And I was like, man, maybe this is a good idea for a life choice, you know? Uh, So that was kind of neat. And then the other one, and this one goes for probably anybody who's ever done any sort of the business that we've done. I was flying for Mm -hmm. a route clearance team in Iraq and we were all kind of based out of the same fob. And what would happen is we'd come in and we'd get our mission set and you'd get a card that would basically say, Hey, from 2100 to 22, you're working for these guys. And from 22 to zero two, you're working for these guys. I remember working with these guys, route clearing stuff and watching their back and talking them on to some people and spending probably three or four hours with those guys and starting to get about three or four o'clock in the morning. And so we tell them, Hey man, we're out of, out of time. They're like, yeah, we appreciate the help. And we get them back into the gate. Well, at chow that morning, cause we would land and debrief and do our things. And at chow that morning, those guys mm-hmm. kind of saw us in our, we don't get to wear the one piece flight suits like all the rest of the branches, but our uniforms are still kind of. You know, recognizable. So, okay. you know, those guys, those same dudes on that route clearance team saw aviators and came up and asked us like, Hey, are you these guys? And we're like, yeah, man, we were out there flying with you. And the joy, the adulation, not that that's why we do it, but those guys were so thankful. Obviously it's Iraq, right? They can't buy you a beer, but they were more than happy to sit and eat right. their scrambled eggs with us and just tell kind of war stories. And it, it reminds you, every day of why that you do the things that you do. It reminds you why you strap on an 18,000 pound computer and, and fly for long hours. And to me, that will always be the reason why I keep doing this. Yeah. And without going on too big a tangent, I hope it's the brotherhood of war, which of course includes females as well. And there's something special about that, that you don't get or see or experience. I don't think anywhere else, maybe a winning sports team might be close to that, but it's very hard, I think, to describe for folks who haven't lived it. And those who have, I think, understand implicitly. It's so crazy. The units that I've been fortunate enough to operate with and the people that I've spent time with and people that, you know, realistically, you don't get along with everybody. Right. And so there's always that one guy that you're like, man, 
I just wish this dude would stop talking. But at the end of the day, like you love him more than probably some of your own family mm-hmm. uh, because you've been together for long periods of time. And I like to call it the combined suck. You know, you've all sucked together. <laughs> so that creates something. So no doubt about it. Yeah, it is an interesting experience for sure. And I've read that there are people, especially the troopers who, who get in a combat with each other, that when they get home, some of them don't adapt well because I guess, I don't know if it's endorphins or dopamine or whatever, but there's no other high like it. And so it's not just the the firefight, but the the bond there with the folks around you. And it's, it's pretty special. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at the motorcycle clubs coming out of World War II and, you know, a lot of those guys were just dudes to get together and be around people of the like mind. Mm-hmm. I tell my wife all the time, at some point, my career is going to come to an end, but I'm going to have to find something to do around the army because I don't think Walmart wants me. So... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. Well, they might not be ready for you. Let's put it that way. But I'm with you. I transitioned to the airlines, which is great and easy and it pays well and et cetera. But you lack the ready room experience and, and those right. shared burdens and the combined suck, as you say. Awesome. All right, man. Well, Tim, this has been a lot of fun. I just got a handful of listener questions if you're if you got a little more time. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. So the first one is from Dyslexy is the name. If both NVG and FLIR were viable in a given lighting slash weather condition, what might cause you to use one or the other during the flight? And I think you've already touched on this. Uh, How capable did you feel when flying in zero loom, illum situations where NVGs weren't ideal? FLIR makes it a non-factor. You know, if you're flying FLIR, you can pretty much always see. The only time that FLIR struggles a little bit is moisture in the air. Okay. So you just stay out of the clouds. A lot of the guys that do fly goggles, you know, we for one, we always fly goggles at night. So even though that we primarily fly FLIR, we will also always bring goggles with us. It's twofold, right? Uh, system failures. And then a lot of the ground lights, mm. you know, personnel identifiers, laser pointers, and things like that are only goggle capable. We will generally have our front seaters on goggles to be able to help find ground force commanders and, and do those sorts of things. And also tracers, you know, sometimes under FLIR, you can be taking fire and not know it. Oh, yeah. However, goggles make you realize baseballs are yeah. scarier than you think they are. <laughs> Which is when you take them off and say, okay, I'm safe now. That's right. You take them <laughs> off and you're good to go again. There you go. Exactly. All right. Andrew McDonald asks, in his book, Apache, Ed Macy says that in an emergency, a downed Apache crew could be rescued by another Apache. The downed crew would secure themselves to the wings and ride back to a safe area on the outside of the aircraft. I've never heard of this. Do American crews train to do this? Or is it only a British thing? Has it ever been done operationally aside from the Jug Room Fort rescue mission, which I'm not familiar with that? Yeah, I'm not sure I'm familiar with the Jug Room Fort. So, yes, it is something that we train. It's something that we talk about. We call it buddy extraction. And really what drove that was uh, in the event you're shot down in, in hostile territory, uh, we'll put the aircraft down and you know your wingman will land beside you and you strap on. We have basically giant carabiners that we fly with on our vest. They're meant for hoist extractions and things like that from other assets, but we train in how to connect ourselves to the aircraft and be able to fly back sitting on a wing in front of one of the engines. That's crazy. At that point, I'm guessing you're not raging around uh, with door gunners now and shooting up. You just go somewhere and drop them off and then get back in it. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize how much wind 60 knots is. Oh yeah, yeah <laughs> so, so yeah, really you're basically just holding on for dear life. We have done this a handful of times. There are a couple stories floating around of guys having to, to put aircraft down outside of the wire and their wingman being able to get them. And then there's actually a, 
a really good picture, and I think it might actually be the Brits, of them moving some soft guys across the river to Apache's Landing, letting some soft guys climb on the EFEBs, oh, wow. put them across the river and drop them off. <laughs> All right. It, it is a thing. It is a thing. Okay, but they don't make like new Apache students do it in flight school like just for the exposure or something? No, 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 nothing okay. like that. Uh, <laughs> It's one of those things we hope we don't have to do. <laughs> yeah. All right. It's like an ejection seat. I'm with you. Okay. Listener Donald Weller says, how does the army plan for and deal with fast movers? And I put this to Ryan last week on the OH-58 and he kind of bit off on the friendly side of deconfliction. But as far as let's just say from the enemy side, if there is even a threat of jets out there, is that a concern for you guys? Are you going to not go or is just something you can do about that? We talked about the sidewinder, but in practicality. Yeah, it's definitely a concern for us. You know, the hope is that we also have jets and those guys will help take care of us. Realistically, it's not something that we train to do. You know, it's one of those big army problems at this point of, okay, how does this affect us? And I don't know that I'd, yeah. I have a good answer for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need the like weapon system to handle it for you. So yeah, if I was out there with you, I would uh, do my best to take care of it. Absolutely. Uh, like a Two questions kind of the same here. I'll ask them together. Jacob Meltzer says, a question from the simulation game fans. Did any of the pilots, and I realize you can only answer for yourself, Tim, play the 1990s classic PC simulator, Jane's Longbow? It was an AH-64 simulator and an absolute high point for simulators of its era. And then Joe Kunzler says, what computer game comes close to simulating the mighty Apache? So I guess we've kind of answered the one with the other, but any sim fans in your circles? Yeah. So James Longbow is a pretty accurate game um, for, you know, 64s at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it was kind of impressive. And then they had Jane's uh, Comanche, I think, and it had an Osprey option or whatever. But those are really the only ones that I know of. A lot of the other helicopter add-ons to other games aren't really that good. You know, the flight characteristics kind of get weird, but ironically enough in the Apache community, we have a lot of guys who are kind of shooting for that fixed wing thing, you know? So Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of guys are doing the Microsoft flight sim and stuff to get themselves ready. And it's becoming more and more popular to go get your fixed wing ratings at some point while you're flying helicopters. Yeah. Well, it opens doors uh, afterwards for sure, but those doors are kind of slammed shut right now with the COVID stuff (laughs) decimating the airline community. All right. Ryan Shepard asks, is there any sense of lost capability or what might have been regarding the RAH-66? My sense is that its mission was made mostly redundant with the success of the Predator and other UAVs, but I'd love to know if the feelings are more like, man, it would have been cool to have that feature or just you never really thought about it. So. I think that's what, the Comanche? Is that what that thing's called? Yeah, I believe so. I can tell you from the Apache perspective, the killing of the Comanche program was great for us. That freed up a lot of money, which allowed us to upgrade our sites and sensors um, and also to upgrade some of our software capabilities. And quite frankly, it's probably what helped to pay for some of the e-model and give us some of our abilities back. On the downside is it it absolutely cost us the 58 because that aircraft just got older and older and we just weren't upgrading it. And like everything else, some of the other aircraft that came along to replace it weren't able to do what we were hoping they could do. Mm -hmm. So sometimes there is a, a feeling of, I wish we had something. But as far as the Apache community is concerned, you know, it's, it was good for us. Yeah. Well, yeah. Selfishly. The UAV thing, I don't know that we'll ever replace that aircraft uh-huh. because at the end of the day, having a person with his eyeball on the objective is a good thing. Absolutely. 
you know, yeah. the UAVs are great for what they're good at and we're getting better with how we use them every day. I think we're still a ways off from replacing helicopters with them. Yeah, I hope so too. Cause the idea of robots doing our war for us. I mean, we've already got people that bring food right to our door. So right. we're quickly turning into the people in, uh, remember that movie Wally, where we just sit on our little chairs and consume. <laughs> <That's right. Yeah. laughs> anyway, Hey man, you said something that made me think of something I didn't warn you. I was going to ask, so you can punt if you want, but in the military, I should say Navy and Air Force, we talk a lot about like cost per flight hour and maintenance per flight hour. And I haven't really been asking that over the Army Aviation Series, but is the Apache, is it relatively efficient or, I mean, how would you compare it to other aircraft as far as like the costs as well as the amount of maintenance? Is it pretty easy or is it pretty expensive? It's pretty expensive. It's one of the things that the Army is kind of discovering because we got rid of the 58. Okay. I don't know the number off the top of my head uh, right now for what cost per flight hour is, but it's fairly maintenance intensive. You know, it's a giant computer. And so one of the, the jokes is making fun of the Apache guys. The Apache guys never fly because they're always broke, but I've always got more hours than my peers. So that's <laughs> sort of funny. But I always tell guys, you know, if I take my iPad and just go sit it out on the street for two days and let it get heat soaked and everything else, it's not going to work the way it's supposed to either. Right. Uh, it's going to take me a few iterations of off and on to get it going again. And the Apache is the same way, but it is a little more expensive. Um, and I think they're always working on ways to kind of reduce that. But, of course. But then paradoxically, they get more expensive as they get older. That's right. They get more expensive as they get older. You know, it's actually kind of ironic flying the schoolhouse here. I've got to fly two Apaches that were both over 13,000 hours on the airframe. Wow before we took them to Huntsville and, and whatever happened to them, happened to them. Uh, and then I've also flown an aircraft with only 60 hours on the airframe. Oh, cool. And I kind of prefer the one with over 12,000 hours. You know, it's kind of sloppy. It's like a nice car, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like a sixties muscle car or something. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's, you, uh, you know, it's, it's loose enough that you think you can get yourself in trouble. So, yeah. Cool. All right. The uh, last listener question is from Jevo, who says, is the AH-64 still able to carry AIM-9? So I've already asked you this. Or are there any plans to bring them back? And then um, do you train for air-to-air engagements, or is it more of a self-defense capability? So I probably should have waited earlier to ask this one, but I think we've pretty (laughs) much covered this. So the lugs are on there. Let's see if I was listening. Ready? The lugs are on there, but you've never done it. And you talk about it in the ready room, but you guys don't really train to it. Is that effectively true? That's basically it. It becomes one of those questions of, hey, what if? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I guess uh, probably, again, is let the fast movers deal with that and let's stick with what we're good at. And that's the hope, man. It's okay. uh, We have three other branches, or, or really four if you count the Coast Guard. Might as well let them do something. <laughs> that's right. We're all sitting around doing nothing, Tim, while you guys are getting it done. So give me something to yeah. do, would you? Awesome. Well, these listener questions, I appreciate you taking them. They come from our group of about 475 folks that support the show financially, and they get special perks like asking you questions. So I do appreciate that. And on that note, I have a couple new ones that just joined us I want to announce. We have Strike Leads, Jimmy Nicholson and Henry Zabuka. And then we have new mission commanders, Andrew Dean and Aaron Gordon. So it's just a benefit for them. It's uh, really great and appreciate you answering those. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. All right, Tim, what's the future hold for you? I, I forget if you told me how many years you've served, but how many more are you going to go? So I am currently over 20 years. Okay. I joke that the bonus to being over 20 and not having any additional requirements is that I'm never more than nine months from retired. <laughs> right. But I don't know. I recently moved to the office that I'm in and I I really like it. It, It's the first time in my career that I've been in the group of decision makers. So I I think I can 
hopefully make some change for the good, or at least uh, try to make some change for the good. But we'll see. One of the things that if no one else has had the chance to talk about it, then I will. My wife has taken and my kids have taken the backseat to the military far too often. And they've been happy to do it. We've had a great life together. I, I would never change anything that we've done. But at the end of the day, I, I tell people, you know, when mama says it's time, it's time. And no one's going to talk me out of it because she deserves to be able to tell me when to, to step out of it. So we'll see. I've got at least nine more months. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Exactly. But it's a perpetual moving target. That's right. All right. Well, I'm calling it right here. Tim Settle for president 2020, because I'm so glad <laughs> you said that. There are many things I hope to achieve with this podcast. One is, of course, breaking down stereotypes of uh, Hollywood, right? Fighter pilots are, are maligned from your perspective, probably rightfully so. But I'm telling you, Tim, it's not fair. But but the other thing is, is you're so right. And I'm so glad you said that. We did have a whole episode on what we called the home front because this career can be very painful and frankly damaging on the family. The children don't get a vote. They just go where they're supposed to go and they have to make friends and say goodbye to them and move and all these things. And it really is hard. And so I applaud you for that. And I hope that the two of you have an agreement that you're going to continue to do it while it's fun. But at some point, I guess everybody's got to hang it up, right? That's right. And I still enjoy flying. I still love it and I look forward to it every single day. But like I said, the, the day that mama says it's time, it's time and, and I'll be happy to, to build a fence. There you, you know? go. It comes for everyone, but sounds like you're making the most of it. All right, dude. And then our last question on the show, although it's been dying out slowly here in army aviation month is how you got your call signs. So everybody else says those are silly reindeer games as I've put them, but did I hear correctly? Is there one that you have? I do. All my guys call me Dorothy. All right. You know, so call signs are not a big thing in the army, as I'm, I'm sure other people have told you. That's right. But when I was a uh, troop stands guy and, and I had, you know, my company of guys, one of our lieutenants, his brother was a FA-18 guy. And he was like, yeah, you know, my brother's call sign. And, you know, it'd be cool if we did something like that. And I said, well, let's do that. So we planned this big party. We didn't know how to do it. We don't know how the Navy comes up with that stuff or the Air Force comes up with that stuff. And we determined that the best way to do it was to lock ourselves into one of the guy's houses with no wives or kids and as much booze as we could afford (laughs) and not leave until we were all named. And so to prep for this, we had to all pick pictures and send pictures in. And we would build these essentially plaques on the wall where there'd be a bunch of pictures and a guy and a whiteboard. Mm -hmm. And as we drank and partied, we would write names down. And by the end of the night, we had to vote on what everybody's call sign was going to (laughs) be. Well, me being the awesome guy that I am, I have a picture of me riding motorcycles across Kansas that at the time I didn't know it, but there was a tornado starting to drop in the background people are like, how did you do that? And I'm like, well, I didn't know if I had known, I would have done that. So I, I sent this picture in. I'm like, you know, what kind of call sign are you going to come up? I'm like riding in tornadoes and like, this is how tough I am. And one of the guys was like, dude, you look like Dorothy. And it stuck. <laughs> and I was like, no, and I was like, please not. And it stuck. That was Dorothy from that point forward. It's still kind of funny. You know, like I said, it sort of died out with that group of guys because the army doesn't really to do that sort of mm-hmm. thing. But for that group of about 16 people, I will always be Dorothy and the To me, it's awesome. Uh, Well, let me just answer your question, by the way, Dorothy. That's exactly how it (laughs) works because you get people together. There's usually some frivolity and sometimes alcohol, depending on if it can be or not. And whichever one you don't want, that's the one you get. So yeah, you guys are right there with the Navy and the Marine Corps and Air Force in that regard. (laughs) Good. I was hoping we did it right, but I didn't know. Oh, man. Well, 
Dorothy, Tim, this has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot about the AH-64, and I'm kind of sad to see Army Aviation Month 2020 come to a close. So let me put it on you on behalf of all the listeners. Naturally, we didn't cover everything, but we did... Well, let's see. What did we do? We did Army Aviation as an overview with uh, CWO5 Aaron Nance. And then we also did some fixed wing stuff. Then we did flight school with a CWO2 who was not far removed from it. Uh, he talked a little bit about the Blackhawk. Then we did the OH-58 Kiowa. And now we've got the Apache. So I'm putting it to you. Army Aviation Month 2021. What do we need to cover? Give me a couple, three, four ideas. UAVs? Or UASs, really? They yell at me when I call them UAVs. Yeah, I guess it's supposed to be UASs. Um, okay. That's right. It's, that's becoming a thing. And there are some fixed-wing guys. A lot of people don't realize that the Army has a lot of fixed wings. Yep. So you can kind of look at that down the road. But other than that, man, I think you're on par. I did put you on the spot. Of course, you'll understand immediately when I say the Chinook. We definitely need to circle back to that one, I would say. Oh, 100%. It would be interesting uh, with those other airframe, the lift airframes. There's also non-rated guys guys that fly in the back of those aircraft and kind of, you know, pr- oh. protect the aircraft. And so it'd be kind of mm-hmm. neat if you could get those guys. But uh, sure. at the end of the day, we're just happy or me, I'm just happy that someone cares enough to listen to some of the stories and wants to know, because the only way that army aviation stays successful is I train my replacement and I haven't found that guy yet, but when I do, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> You're still looking for someone worthy. Huh? That's right. Well, speaking of that, Aaron Nance is, uh, I was told later it was a unicorn to get a five on there. Is there any chance of you picking up CWO five? How does, uh, how does that work? Why are they so rare? It's tough. We have mandatory time frames for our promotions. So promotion to W2 is an automatic promotion after two years. And then from two to three, you have to be a W2 for five years. You get DA boarded um, or department of the army boarded okay. for, and then selected. And the idea is that you are selected in your fifth year and pinned in your sixth year. So then, you know, six years in before you pin W3, actually eight by that point. Okay. And then W4 is the same thing. So now you got to spend five years as a W3 pin in your sixth year for W4 and then the same thing for W5. So by the time you make W5, you know, you've got to have 18, 20 years in the army. And not to mention a the timeline, but for a long mm-hmm. time W5 selection rates were down around 12, 15%. Oh wow. So generally the guys that made it were the top of the top and good on them. I don't know that I'll ever be a W5, but we'll see. Okay. Good luck with that, man. And uh, thanks so much for your time today. This has really been interesting. I've learned so much and uh, it's just been a lot of fun. I want to wish you all the best with the rest of your career. And thanks for taking the time today. I appreciate it, sir. Thank you. You've been listening to Army Aviation Month here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. For more information on the show, visit our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com where you can also find a catalog of other show topics as well as military aviation-themed merchandise such as books and apparel. For exclusive content and to help support the show, be sure to check out our Patreon page. This episode was brought to you by BVR Productions and produced by our friends at the Muscle Car Place Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. Sir, yes, sir!
thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.